Welcome to the Global Hemophilia Report, a podcast led by science, curiosity, and storytelling. Produced by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media and supported through advertisements by Sanofi. I'm Patrick James Lynch, your host and resident hemophilia patient, and this is episode two of the Global Hemophilia Report. Today's topic, novel therapies. We'll dive in right after this quick message. Sanofi is committed to bringing new perspectives and bold innovations to the global hemophilia community. Learn more about how Sanofi is breaking barriers and supporting the community at sanofihemophilia.com. When I think about novel therapy development in hemophilia, I like to think about what it would mean to run my very own basketball team. I know, that's probably not what you were expecting to hear, but stay with me. The goal of basketball is for a team of five players to work together on putting the ball in the basket more times than their opponent. On my team, I would want to make sure at least one of the five players was an excellent scorer who could be trusted to get us a basket when we really needed one. I'd also want a top-notch facilitator, a visionary with strong passing skills, and I'd want a great offensive rebounder who would give us additional chances to score off a miss. Point being, I'd want a variety of different talents out there, all working within their own specialized skill set toward that common goal. The coagulation cascade, in my mind, isn't that much different than my basketball team, with each protein and molecule working within its own skill set and characteristics to do its part in helping the cascade reach its common goal which is the creation of a fibrin mesh to support platelet plugs and stop bleeding. Now on my basketball team, let's say one of my players gets injured. I need to replace that player. If that player was a great passer, I would probably be looking to replace him or her with another great passer. Just in the same way that if I'm missing factor eight, I might look to replace it with factor eight. Well, maybe another great passer isn't available but an equally strong team-oriented facilitator is. She's not exactly factor eight, but she behaves the same way and accomplishes the same individual goal as factor eight. This brings to mind emicizumab and other mimetic or substitutive therapies designed to replace the function of a missing protein without actually being that missing protein. Or maybe my team just keeps losing games. Our chemistry is poor, the strategy isn't working, we need a more invasive intervention. And I decide to trade a couple of our great scorers and great facilitators for more power on the defensive end. We might not have that potent offense I'd originally intended, but our ramping up of our defensive activity is actually gonna lead us to the same intended outcome, scoring more baskets than our opponents. But instead of relying on offense, now we rely on defense. Same end result, makes me think about the investigations into the manipulation of antithrombin, anti-tissue factor pathway inhibitor, and other hemostatic rebalancing agents. Novel therapies in hemophilia are exciting. They are also just that, novel. They're new. They are still being investigated. Individuals with hemophilia have been the beneficiaries of therapeutic development now for over three decades. However, both hemophilia A and B have more recently become intended targets for a decade of unprecedented therapeutic innovation, some of which is aimed at the potential cure of clotting factor deficiency 
through gene replacement strategies. Not only are the slate of therapeutics new, but all have been the products of state-of-the-science-driven novel approaches to their conception, development, and administration. But while these therapies are paving the way to historical therapeutic ease and efficacy, they are also ushering the hemophilia community into an uncharted territory of potentially new challenges, which raise important questions that we must now consider. One, what are we learning about the safety and efficacy of these novel therapies from preclinical studies and clinical trials? Two, based in part on our experience with emicizumab, what will we still need to learn about novel therapies after licensure? And how should the community collectively think about the research and surveillance studies required to fill in the knowledge gaps? And three, as more novel therapies are licensed, how will they be appropriately integrated into reimbursable and affordable patient care in high, middle, and low-income countries? How will patients and their caregivers get access to the information they need to navigate the landscape of options in order to design a safe and effective, uniquely tailored treatment strategy? If you ask me, like, what therapy gets me the most excited? What's the therapy that I think could ultimately really actually cure hemophilia? The one that keeps jumping out to me is... We will also hear what some of our expert contributors, like Dr. Guy Young, are most particularly excited about in the field of novel therapy investigation, though you'll have to stick around to the end of the episode for that. Let's start our journey in the area of novel therapy development that actually benefits from a tremendous amount of data and real-world experience already. I'm referring to the evolution of factor replacement therapy. Among the novel therapy, I include new factor eight molecules because new factor eight molecules are currently undergoing investigation. This is Dr. Maria Alicia Mancuso, a hematologist researcher and bleeding disorders expert working out of Milan, Italy. It's been really exciting to see uh, continued innovation on the recombinant DNA platform. Dr. Stephen Pipe is a hematologist, researcher, and professor working out of the University of Michigan in the U.S. He also serves as the chair of the National Hemophilia Foundation's Medical and Scientific Advisory Council. When we developed recombinant proteins for factor eight and factor nine, many of us knew that that wasn't the end game, right? Yes, it's a great facsimile of the plasma-derived factor eight or factor nine, but we always knew that we could make modifications based on the recombinant DNA platform, and we could change the function or some of the characteristics of these molecules. Anybody who has severe factor eight knows that the most typical therapeutic prophylactic approach is an infusion every other day. Uh, IV access, and then you get maybe one day off, and then you gotta roll up your sleeves the next morning, and then you're ready to do it all over again. And that's every month, every year, every decade, right? So to have a modification of the half-life of the molecule is an immediate improvement for the patient's experience. To be clear, extended half-life factor products have been commercially available for hemophilia A and B for the last few years. The sticking point, so to speak, is just how extended, or not, the currently available products are. Some may not like the way I would characterize it, but BIV001, it 
really is the first opportunity for a truly extended half-life product for the typical factor replacement. I'm Mark Skinner. I live with severe hemophilia. Although I'm professionally trained as a lawyer, the last couple decades of my life have really been dedicated to the hemophilia community in a variety of volunteer roles, and most recently, really trying to raise the patient voice to build clinical research around outcomes that are important to patients. Historically, we have really thought about what would be called trough levels. What is the minimum level of factor activity that would provide protection? And how long does it take until you no longer have therapeutic coverage? But for many, particularly some of the younger generation who have ambitions of being highly active, sports, competitive activities, the peaks also matter. Bivol one's a fun molecule to, to think about. The impact on the pharmacokinetics was really impressive. Now we're getting uh, extensions of the factor eight half-life about five-fold beyond the standard half-life factor eight. And all of the previous attempts at extending factor eight half-life with pegylation, FC fusion, et cetera, were all capped at about a 1.5-fold uh, half-life extension. So this is a marked improvement in the half-life. With the BIV-001 molecule, we have the advantage of knowing very well the properties of factor eight, because it's now de decades that we know factor eight its mechanism of action, the interaction with other molecules in coagulation. Factor VIII, its biology is that when it gets secreted into the plasma, it immediately interacts with von Willebrand factor, which is this big carrier protein. And that's what secures and stabilizes factor VIII and keeps it inside the blood. Turns out that every extended half-life molecule for factor VIII that's been designed so far they all have a ceiling for how long you can extend the half-life of the molecule because it's still interacting with von Willebrand factor. So in a way, it's how uh, it's possible to go beyond the limitation of the half-life of von Willebrand factor. If we really want to go for a super extended half-life factor eight, we're going to have to divorce it from binding to von Willebrand factor. In this new factor eight molecule, we have still the coupling with the FC fragment of immune globulin, but also a new, let's say, addition in the molecule, which is the D-prime free portion of von Willebrand factor. And you can make a recombinant version of the D'D3 segment and can bind it to factor eight and it will stabilize it in plasma and it doesn't have to and won't bind to native von Willebrand factor. So the group that developed Loctate, uh, which is an FC fusion to recombinant factor eight, they made a recombinant D'D3 fragment. They also fused it to the FC portion of immunoglobulin. That then forms a dimerized components of factor eight FC, D'D3 FC. And uh, also there are some uh, additional polypeptides added to the molecule. There is a technique by which you can insert some repeating amino acids. This is the building blocks of a protein, right? So there are compatible regions in the factor eight molecule where you can insert these polypeptide segments. You don't affect the activity of the protein, but what it does is it also contributes to probably buffering the factor eight away from clearance 
receptors as it's going through the blood plasma. Of course, there is a lot of modification of the molecules. You've got the great divorce from Baumler-Brand factor, stabilization with the D'D3 FC fusion, and then these polypeptide segments to reduce its clearance. So. Uh, what we need to know is if long-term or, let's say, in a large sample size of patients, such modification could not elicit bad response from immune system or, uh, let's say, have no bad interaction with other receptors or with other molecules. This molecule is being explored in a clinical trial program. So far, so good. By now, the clinical trials have given to us a good feedback in terms of efficacy and safety. I'm really encouraged to see that factor replacement has not become a thing of the past, but will be one additional element in the arsenal for us to tailor treatment to the individual and what their personal goals are. Building on a point made by Dr. Mancuso, factor 8 and factor 9 are molecules that we know quite well by this point. So, if innovation to factor replacement therapy sits on one end of the novel therapy development spectrum, we'll now focus on the other end of the spectrum and explore AAV gene therapy. That's next, right after this quick break. Globally, approximately 75% of people living with hemophilia have limited or no access to treatment. Sanofi is committed to helping address this public health crisis. In 2020, Sanofi, together with Sobi, extended their support for the WFH Humanitarian Aid Program, fulfilling their 2014 pledge to donate up to 1 billion IUs of Factor for humanitarian use over a 10-year period. This is the single largest donation of hemophilia factor therapy and has already provided treatment for more than 17,300 people in 43 countries an important first step to providing a sustainable supply of therapy to those in need. To learn more about Sanofi's global commitment to the hemophilia community, visit SanofiHemophilia.com. I remember hearing about gene therapy when I was really young actually and I know my mum was told about gene therapy early on after my diagnosis as a exciting potential future treatment that would cure haemophilia. Welcome back. That voice belongs to Luke Pembroke who was born with severe haemophilia B. A little over two years ago Luke was infused with AAV gene therapy as part of a clinical trial. Like many of us with hemophilia, Luke and his family have been hearing about the promise and potential of gene therapy for literally decades. And then, one day, it was Luke's reality. I think my light bulb moment of, wow, I'm actually about to do this, first came in the taxi on the way to the hospital the morning of being dosed, where I suddenly had this butterflies in my stomach feeling. And then I was in the treatment room and my nurse was prepping everything, getting things ready. And then all of a sudden, my nurse looked over to me and said, are you, are you all set? Uh, we're ready to go. And I just sort of said, what, right now? This is it, this is happening. And it was a strange moment, sitting down and being hooked up to that IV bag and hearing the beeps kick in on the machine. There are no fireworks. And all of a sudden, that's it. Gene therapy is on its way in to the body. And 
There's not really any going back at that point. That's that. That's that. After decades of wonder and speculation, in that moment, Luke was receiving an infusion that, unlike the hundreds of factor infusions that came before it, could be the last one he ever needed to control his hemophilia. But Luke didn't receive a commercially approved therapy. Luke enrolled in an investigational clinical trial. There are numerous gene therapy clinical trials happening in both hemophilia A and B. And the big question is what are we learning about the effectiveness and safety of gene therapy from these trials? We are learning a lot about the safety and efficacy of gene therapy from the ongoing clinical trials. My name is Glenn Pierce. I'm the elected vice president of medical for the WFH. I've been able to develop a number of protein drugs in the hemophilia space, five or six to be exact. I also am a biotech entrepreneur. I've done that my whole career. And a lot of my focus is in gene therapy over the last 20, 25 years or so. While there are several different factor eight and factor nine gene therapy clinical trials in phases two and three at the moment, one thing they all have in common is the utilization of what's called an adeno-associated viral vector. That's an AAD vector. It's a small virus that has been gutted. Its genetic machinery has been removed and our gene of interest, factor eight or factor nine, have been placed inside of it. And then that's administered intravenously to patients. A lot of it goes to the liver where it gets into hepatocytes, the liver cells, and hopefully makes factor eight or factor nine. That's the theory, but does it work? I am actually quite optimistic and enthusiastic about the preliminary findings thus far in terms of efficacy. Multiple trials have demonstrated that if you have sustained expression of your factor eight or factor nine gene, then you can have pretty remarkable effect on phenotype. My name is Lindsay George. I was the uh, lead PI of the uh, first successful factor nine uh, Padua clinical trial, phase one, two trial. I'm an assistant professor of pediatrics. I am an, an attending physician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and I'm also the director of clinical in vivo gene therapy at the Children's Hospital. We would hope that you could have a one-time therapy where you would have sustained multi-decade therapeutic benefit and that this could be a benefit to all patients that receive the vector. A one-time or one-and-done therapy is often what AAV gene therapy is described as, both because, optimistically, to Dr. George's point, we aspire for AAV gene therapy to be curative, and because a patient can only receive an adeno-associated viral vector once. We'll get into why a little later in the show. Now in phase two, phase three trials, we are seeing a tremendous amount of variability and a series of events that would best be characterized as learning as we go. In the case of factor eight, we don't understand why we see a number of patients losing activity over a period of years. Mark decline over time for reasons that are not clear. We see in the small phase one, two trial that was done with seven patients for the high dose, those patients have gone from an average of 64% down to 8% in about five years. So that's a substantial drop. And we have no idea why when the same dose is given to the patient. 
I think an outstanding question in the field is what's our goal? What's a minimal tolerated factor level that we would say to have success? And, you know, that remains not clear. Whereas for factor nine, we see more stable responses. It's important to distinguish between the two. AAV factor nine looks as if it will provide, I hesitate to say permanent, but a long-term cure for hemophilia if a patient can get above 20 or 30% factor nine activity. The average uh, or the median factor nine activity from the Unicure trial, phase three trial was about 37%. So for most of those patients, they are really free from the use of exogenous factor nine replacement therapy. Dr. George and Pierce are touching on two of the three key areas of study in investigational clinical trials. Efficacy, does the therapy produce the intended effect, in this case, adequate expression of factor protein? And durability, does that intended effect last over time? Durability, while always important to study in clinical trials, is of particular interest with AAV gene therapy. This is a once-and-done therapy, or it's supposed to be, because after receiving AAV factor 8 or AAV factor 9, one cannot go back and get another dose. We make sky-high antibodies to the AAV capsid. It's a virus, and it's a foreign material. We're injecting it. Our immune systems will make very, very high antibodies, and those antibodies will last for decades. So there is really no solution to repeat dosing when it comes to AAV. That's a problem for a once-and-done kind of a therapy and is not the sort of thing that one would envision as a curative therapy for hemophilia. This mention of immune response also brings in the third key area of study, and that's safety. So while there are clearly reasons to continue studying the efficacy and durability of AAV gene therapy in hemophilia A and B, perhaps most importantly, is AAV gene therapy proving to be safe? I think overall, the the safety so far has been quite remarkable. There have not been any major safety concerns that have come out of AAV gene therapy efforts for hemophilia. In humans, the longest data that we have is from the University College of London and St. Jude's Factor IX trial that started back essentially in 2010. So we've got about 10 to 12 years of data in the handful of people that participated in that trial. So far, there hasn't been any big safety signal. Hi, my name is Michael Recht. I go by Mike. I am a pediatric hematologist for over 25 years. About two years ago, I joined the American Thrombosis and Hemostasis Network in the role of chief science officer, directing all the science and research surveillance that we do through Athens. The primary safety concern I think that's emerging now from hemophilia therapy efforts is really toxicities incurred from the concurrent use of immunosuppression on AAV gene therapy trials. So that's an outstanding question. And then the other outstanding question with to safety are our long-term safety implications. AAV is predominantly non-integrating, but we know AAV does integrate. And with integration, it's of course in the wrong place. That's a problem that could result in cancer. So there is the theoretical potential for genotoxicity, although that's not been observed. I will say that in hemophilia and outside of hemophilia, there's now getting to be several hundreds of patients that received AAV vectors. And so sort of optimistic at this point that, that there have really not been confirmed genotoxicity events, although I would say the field's still very much in its infancy. 
if the field of AAV gene therapy is still very much in its infancy, but if we are also rapidly approaching a time when AAV gene therapeutics for hemophilia A and B will be commercially available for patients, how do we ensure ongoing monitoring and data collection is taking place in an organized and effective way? Once gene therapies are licensed, and I'm confident that gene therapies for hemophilia will be licensed um, over these next few years, it's going to be very important to monitor the patient. Remember, licensure only tells us short-term safety and effectiveness of any device or intervention that is under FDA regulatory approval process. Our new natural history study, Athen Transcends, that is being rolled out across the U.S. Hemophilia Treatment Center network through 2022. We will be following people who receive a gene therapy vector for up to 15 years. At the World Federation of Hemophilia, we have established a gene therapy registry. We're working hand in hand with Athen, the American Thrombosis and Hemostasis Network. What we did was essentially harmonize our questions with the World Federation of Hemophilia. Our goal is to get every single person who receives gene therapy on that registry. In order to have an early warning system, should something occur, and so that we have evidence of long-term efficacy. But we need to come up with a blueprint. As a clinical researcher, what do I want to know? What's happening on the population basis? Is there any big safety signals that we're seeing? Is there any problems with durability? What an individual who's considering getting gene therapy wants to know, what's it going to do to me? What matters to me uh, as an individual that lives with severe hemophilia are outcomes and changes that the therapy would make in my life on things that matter to me, not just esoteric clinical outcomes that might matter to the FDA. This includes metrics such as pain, the ability to work, to go to school, to have a family, and to really do the things that someone who is not living with uh, a bleeding disorder can do. And my thinking has evolved about that to make sure I'm taking into consideration what the people who are using these medications want to know long-term. There are two companies that have completed their phase three studies, and so we've had a glimpse into that data to the extent it has been published. And we are seeing from those metrics that quality of life is improving, and generally, that improvement in quality of life is being sustained over the life of the study. I think the field is very optimistic. There's remarkable success. And then with that success comes the next layer of how do we make this even better? And, and I think doing so depends on, on answering questions. Where are you in five years or 10 years? What's your factor eight or your factor nine level? Have you had any clinical problems that might or might not be related to the gene therapy? It's okay not to know the answers to many of these questions if the results warrant progression into later clinical trials, but it's not okay not to know the answers to these questions if we expect this to be a commercial product. Patients have to make informed decisions along the way. But if we're thinking about consent, so you informed consent, how do you ensure that people are informed? My name is Rich Gorman. I'm a research fellow in bioethics at Brighton and Sussex Medical School in the UK. Rich also has severe haemophilia. 
We know there are challenges around patients' capabilities to understand the information provided on medical treatments and trials being offered. We know that patients' evaluations of risk, benefits, can be really swayed by how their information is presented to them. We know there's a danger of overestimating the benefits and underestimating the risks in, in trials and new treatments. The advent of gene therapies really ratchets some of that up and adds in additional complexities and the significance of, of, of getting that right. The decisions that I and you know, my friends have to make when you sit down in the clinic room with a clinician and decide what's the right treatment for me really are challenging. Up until a few years ago, it was relatively simple. It was sort of a one standard for everybody. We all get the same and we treated the disease. Now we're treating the individual. And each of us as individuals have different goals. We have different priorities. We have different aspects of life that are important to us. And so we're going to look for therapies that help advance what's important to us as individuals. But how do we prepare the clinic room? How do we prepare the patient-physician encounter so that I make the right decision? In the past, if you weren't happy with the decision, you could change your mind and you could switch to another treatment. That's not possible with gene therapy. Currently, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and it's not reversible. So getting that conversation right is really important. If we're thinking about how to empower people to freely choose, then we need to provide people with information so that they can think about the idea of maximization of benefits and minimization of potential harms, but making sure that information is, is presented in an understandable and engaging way. So much of this is navigated, negotiated and presented to patients through really unwieldy consent forms that are formatted in quite a legal prose and, and mainly there to satisfy regulatory compliance and kind of loaded with complex scientific terminologies and technical jargon. I count myself very lucky that my involvement in the haemophilia community afforded me a lot of opportunities to speak to healthcare professionals and experts about gene therapy. Definitely made me feel a lot more comfortable in my decision to take part in the gene therapy clinical trial. A concept that is strongly emerging in the healthcare field is the concept of shared decision-making. Patients really are partners in their care and patients need to consider themselves as experts in their care. We are experts from our lived experience, in my case, 60 plus years of lived experience with the disease. So I know what I'm looking for in my therapy. So we need to find ways, tools, and training to enhance the clinical conversation. It's always about finding ways to have better conversations to enable people to feel comfortable to ask questions and be confident in, in their decision-making. And it's not always intuitive. It takes training both on the part of the clinicians and the part of the patients. How do I even know what the right questions are to ask? And how does a clinician know to facilitate and sort of draw me out in that clinical conversation of what matters to me? So in the spirit of informed clinician-patient dialogues, and given what we know at the moment about the efficacy, durability, and safety of AAV gene therapy for hemophilia A and B, how should clinicians and patients be speaking to each other about the state of AAV gene therapy? I think for me to be confident to sit in front of a patient, I would uh, feel much much more strongly about recommending AAV gene therapy to a, a patient on a, on a licensed vector, not a clinical trial, but a licensed vector, if I knew that everybody that got the vector had some degree of clinical benefit. And the reason for that is perhaps because of my own optimism, which is that there's so much activity in this space and there's so much progress that's been made in a short period of time 
There's a lot of work that's ongoing, and I'm optimistic that we're going to get there. I am cautious about AAV therapy. When these clinical trials got started in the 2010s, we didn't have the novel products that we have today. I think it's very important with all of the therapies that we have at our disposal to really take a very in-depth look at the benefit-risk ratio on an individual patient basis. My biggest concern is durability. I do worry about the effects wearing off and ending up back where I started, especially now that I've got used to living life without severe hemophilia without being dependent on regular factor prophylaxis. Because of my personal bias of safety, I want to make sure that we are not moving forward without making sure that nothing happens again like what happened back in the 70s and 80s. That we can't just jump into new technology because we think it's the next greatest thing, and we have to be sure that it is the next greatest thing. When I think about gene therapy, I think it's important, and I, I sort of use the, the, the college curriculum analogy, we're in gene therapy 101 right now. It is not the end. It really is just the beginning. No gene therapy is offering my aspirational hope of being cured uh, of hemophilia. They are shaping up at present to be extended therapies, quite extended, maybe in the decades. They aren't yet curative. But the field is advancing, and I think we've really only seen just the beginning. And hopefully I'm around long enough to see the cure. From enhancements to good old factor replacement therapy, to the most buzzy of novel therapy investigations with gene therapy, let's next take a look at what are called mimetic or substitution therapies, which includes the one novel therapy in today's discussion, emicizumab, that is commercially available at the time of this recording. So how do these substitutive therapies work, and what are some of the critical data helping us to better understand them? Let's think about what is Factor VIII's job to do. Factor VIII's job is to bring Factor IX and Factor X together. Dr. Guy Young is a pediatric hematologist, researcher, and the director of the Hemophilia Treatment Center at the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. Sometimes I kid around and say that that Factor VIII, in terms of a, a wedding, is the priest or the rabbi or the person overseeing the wedding ceremony. And his job is to make sure that factor nine and factor 10 come into a nice proper alignment. What Hemlibra or the other bispecific antibodies do is they're essentially performing the function of factor eight, bringing factor nine and 10 together in the absence of factor eight. So without replacing what is missing, you're essentially substituting for that function by putting in a molecule that can do the same thing. Emicizumab was the first substitution therapy to be brought commercially to many countries around the world for the benefits to the patient. A sub-Q therapy over an intravenous, a pretty low intensity regimen, once a week, every two weeks, every four weeks. The advantages potentially of steady state prophylaxis over the peaks and troughs of traditional factor replacement therapy. The bispecific monoclonal antibody, emicizumab, since it mimics the cofactorial function of factor eight, indeed there is factor 10 activation. Indeed, we have a sort of persistent protection, especially against the spontaneous bleeds. On the other side, we are managing a molecule that mimics factor eight in function, but it, it is not factor eight. And so not being factor eight, not being exactly that protein, 
all the interaction with other coagulation factors, with all the receptors that usually are involved in, let's say, the switch on and off mechanism of factor eight, is no longer there. So the safety concern may be related to the fact that the control of this molecule is different from factor eight. Last I heard, and I don't have any solid numbers, but I, I think it's a fair to say that about 40% plus of patients with severe hemophilia around the country are on emicizumab at this point. And there are pockets of, of the country where you may see uh, prescription rates closer to 70 or 80%. People would not be gravitating to those therapeutics if it really wasn't proven to be safe and, and, and effective in most people's applications. What has been verified, and now I think it's already clear, is that uh, the use of this monoclonal bispecific antibody in patients with inhibitors and in combination with the activated prothrombin complex concentrate, APCC, may give some problems in terms of enhancing thrombotic events. The good is that we also have the opportunity to prevent such events because just avoiding the use of APCC at high dose for a longer time, we know that we have no chance to have such side effects. Maybe we need more follow-up for this molecule to understand the long-term benefits and maybe also drawbacks of such a molecule. It doesn't have any competition. There are potential second-generation substitution therapies that could come along. The company that originally developed emicizumab, I know, are, are working on innovations to maybe improve the effectiveness of the bispecific antibody. And uh, another company has an interesting molecule that's called the MIMATE, M-I-M, and then the number eight, sort of playing on the words like a, a memetic for factor eight. MyMate is uh, also designed to be a more potent version of a substitution therapy. And so if this gets through the clinical trial process and then looks suitable for regulatory review, then I think having more than one substitution therapy in the marketplace is gonna make a difference over the long run. We explore the final grouping of novel therapies and conclude with discussions on access and the future right after one final break. Did you know that nearly 80% of bleeds in hemophilia occur in the joints? Joint bleeds are the most common type of bleed and can cause lasting damage as well as increase the risk of recurrent bleeds. Sanofi is committed to breaking barriers for patients, including providing resources and education to support joint health. Visit hemejointhealth.com to see how routine, objective assessment might benefit patients' joint health for the long term. Again, that's heme, as in H-E-M, jointhealth.com. This site is intended for U.S. healthcare professionals. Welcome back. Remember my kinda lousy basketball team from the start of the episode? Well, if replacing a player with a comparable one didn't solve my problems, and if substituting a player for one with similar skills didn't quite do it either, then I may consider a strategy of zooming out, evaluating the team's overall composition, and reimagining my offensive and defensive balance. This reconsidering of what in basketball might be referred to as floor balance 
leads us back to the final group of novel therapies for discussion today, hemostatic rebalancing therapies. Our coagulation system is basically in a balance. So you can think about scales. And on those scales, I want you to imagine putting four blocks on one side, and that's factor. Factor eight, factor nine, there's other factors. And those blocks, their job is to help make a blood clot. On the other side of the scale, we also have proteins that are quote unquote, like anti-factors. They're basically there to prevent us from having blood clotting. So those two groups are working together to prevent people from having too much bleeding and too much clotting. If you remove a block from the factor side, the scale is tilted and it's tilted in the direction of bleeding. That's why people with hemophilia, if they're missing a factor, are at risk for and have bleeding symptoms. If we then take a block from the other side, those patients are missing a protein that helps prevent clotting. And they actually have kind of the opposite of hemophilia where their blood clots too easily and they can have complications from that. The idea of the rebalancing therapy is to say, let's think of those scales and let's take a patient with hemophilia. So I'm gonna take one block off and now the scale is out of balance. But instead of adding something on that side, like factor or hemlibra or gene therapy to rebalance, instead we're gonna remove something from the other side. Instead of adding a procoagulant, like factor or hemlibra or gene therapy, we are knocking down the activity of the natural anticoagulants that a patient has. So now instead of having four blocks and four blocks, we have three blocks and three blocks but the scales are now even again. So you're back into this balance where you're not excessively bleeding or excessively clotting. And there's three main targets that all regulate how effectively your blood clots. Tissue factor pathway inhibitor, activated protein C, and antithrombin. Now, the hemostatic rebalancing strategies, for the most part, have actually been pretty potent in their ability to correct the hemostatic pathway. It may not be surprising then if you started to see some consequences of overshooting on that global rebalancing. With factor replacement therapy, there's a defect to factor eight or factor nine, so we replace factor eight or factor nine there's a precision to it. The intervention is highly targeted and easily measurable. But here we're turning dials that are having potentially more global effects on coagulation. So if you're talking about, say, knocking down the activity of antithrombin, how much can we turn those dials? Is there a threshold by which you can't really go below that or you might start to see some adverse effects from regulating hemostasis in that way? I would say that we are exploring something that was never explored in hemophilia, the deficiency of antithrombin. It's something that we know something that, in a way, we are afraid of as clinicians because a patient with antithrombin deficiency may experience very bad thrombotic disorder. So we are trying to mimic something that, in a way, can be troublesome or dangerous. But in the frame of hemophilia, we uh, understood that this can be also effective. Ultimately, you have to do the clinical trials to really tease out what's the safe dosing. And if we look back to the early phase trials with Fetuzaran, 
Fetusaran is an investigational, subcutaneously administered RNA therapeutic designed, simply put, to lower antithrombin. And because its target is antithrombin instead of a factor protein, it's being explored for prophylactic treatment of people with hemophilia A or B with or without inhibitors. We see that this therapy was quite effective. The bleed control was very good in these patients as a prophylactic agent, but there were rare cases, one handful of events, where it looked like the knockdown of the antithrombin might have been at a root cause of a clot complication, so a thrombosis, we call it. Serious adverse events, such as the formation of a thrombosis, are an unfortunate part of clinical trials but they also provide important information that can lead to critical adjustments to the ongoing investigation. So what's now being investigated is can we narrow the knockdown of the antithrombin so that patients are in the range of about 15 to 30% knockdown of their normal antithrombin levels. And then we'll have to evaluate going forward, does that reduce the risk of thrombosis? And did we maintain bleed control? Because we don't want to have a situation where we eased up on the antithrombin knockdown and then we lost the ability to prevent breakthrough bleeds. So in a sense, we are trying to find a sweet spot for this kind of therapy. But what makes this particular approach to hemostatic rebalancing of manipulating antithrombin worthy of continued investigation? If we're using the thrombin generation as a readout of potential predictability for hemostatic control, the prophylactic potential of this intervention could be quite substantial and maybe even superior to other non-factor therapies. The feedback I had from patients is really, my life changed is not just a way to say. The life changed enormously. I do think that looking at this, I would pursue the development of such a molecule. Okay, so targeting antithrombin for hemostatic rebalancing appears to be a worthy investigation. But what about some of the other strategies being explored? What about anti-tissue factor pathway inhibitors or anti-TFPI? Tissue factor pathway inhibitor. This acts at sort of the initiation phase of blood coagulation, and it's a completely different target. There are different versions, if you like, in your body of a tissue factor uh, pathway inhibitor. So there have been a few iterations of the types of antibodies that are used to attack the tissue factor pathway inhibitor pathway. For anti-TSPI, I don't think that the clinical trial program can give us all the information needed to be sure about efficacy and safety because TSPI is one coagulation molecule not well known as factor eight or as antithrombin. We know a lot more of those molecules in the physiology. As we've learned with most things in medicine, many of us require some degree of personalization to get the best suited approach for our uh, biology. And that's what's now being explored with concizumab, and hopefully that will lead to a ideal therapeutic approach that could then be considered for regulatory review. The last target for hemostatic rebalancing that we'll discuss today is something called activated protein C. The newest one on the block is a target for activated protein C. So this is an interesting target because activated protein C, I like to think of as a sponge for mopping up 
excess amounts of thrombin that get generated in the course of forming a clot. And so in that way, it does dampen down the excess coagulation that goes on when your blood gets activated, but it's counterproductive for a patient with hemophilia because you, every amount of a little bit of thrombin that a hemophilia patient can generate, you want to help facilitate blood clotting. And so if you got activated protein C there, it's this sponge that's sort of mopping up that thrombin and preventing you from getting the benefit from maybe whatever little bit of thrombin you've generated related to your treatment or your prophylaxis. So the idea that you could impair the action of this sponge, this activated protein C, and then restore enough thrombin so that patients could uh, be prevented from bleeding, I think is a really attractive approach. And so that's what's now being tested for the first time just this past year or so in the clinical trials. But I, I think what is most interesting is by dampening down this activated protein C sponge, if you like, is this potentially a safer approach than some of the other modulations that are being explored with hemostatic rebalancing? It's still early days for hemostatic rebalancing. It's an exciting approach. It offers real advantages for patients. There are some segments of the hemophilia population who have not had an innovation for their treatment in well over 30 years. And this is particularly true for those with hemophilia B who have developed inhibitors. So the hemostatic rebalancing therapies, in my mind, are really a huge beacon of hope for patients who've suffered from this particular complication of hemophilia B. And so I'm very hopeful. All of the research and lab work being done should give patients and treaters alike much to be excited about. As multiple contributors have shared, some of these therapies have been discussed as even potentially curing hemophilia. But a therapy is only as valuable as it is accessible. And for all the science that we've heard about, what do we know and what can we forecast about patient access to these therapies when they do, in fact, become available? Dr. Glenn Pierce from the World Federation of Hemophilia weighs in. In high-income countries, should a patient make a choice for an, a, an approved gene therapy in conjunction with the decision-making process with their healthcare providers, uh, chances are excellent that it will be reimbursed. I don't really have much concern about that because over a period of a few years, gene therapy is cost-effective. Reimbursement agencies will see that, and it's just a matter of coming up with the mechanism. The bigger problem is in middle-income and low-income countries. Those countries don't have access to the state-of-the-art care that we've got in high-income countries. High-income countries represent 15% of the world. That's where all the resources are dedicated. The middle-income countries, 15% or so of the world, get some treatment, but they don't have state-of-the-art prophylactic care. And then the rest of the world not only doesn't have state-of-the-art prophylactic care, but they miss quite a bit in the way of treatment of bleeding episodes and have associated morbidity and mortality with their hemophilia. This is the population that needs gene therapy the most. Although GD therapy, if everyone understands that is a very expensive treatment, and I have no doubt about it. Dr. Margaret Ocello is an associate professor of internal medicine and the director of the hematology division at the University of Campinas in Sao Paulo, Brazil. I truly believe that the possibility to have one infusion treatment for some of the patients will be very important for 
places as Brazil or as other developing countries where the access to treatment can be uh, limited. It's the population where there is the best benefit-risk ratio for gene therapy, and yet it's the population that can least afford it. And let's talk for a moment about that, because people have talked about the cost of gene therapy for patients to be a million, two million, three million dollars. All kinds of numbers are floating around. If we look at the one gene therapy that has been approved to date, AAV gene therapy for systemic use, its charge is $2.2 million per patient. That is for patients who have spinal muscular atrophy. It is a lethal disease. Patients are dead within the first 12 to 18 months of life. And this therapy can save them, at least for a period of time. We don't know for how long yet, but it is a life-saving therapy. And so in that case, the benefit risk is clear. It's this therapy or death. It's not so clear in in hemophilia in high-income countries, but in lower-income countries, it is clear. There is significant morbidity and mortality associated with hemophilia. The majority of people with hemophilia in low-income countries have died. That is a fact, and therefore aren't discoverable by any sort of outreach. Others are discoverable by outreach. They're living uh, with severe disability, severe joint damage. They make it into their teens, into their 20s, incapable of working, incapable of dealing with life because of all of the damage that they've had from uncontrolled bleeding. That's the population that needs gene therapy. When we talk about the cost of gene therapy, Let's differentiate between how much the patient is charged and how much it costs to make. And so the manufacturers may tell you it costs a lot of money to make. That's not exactly true. It doesn't cost that much to make relative to the price of $2 million. The cost to make is literally a drop in the bucket compared to a $2 million charge. And so there are ways that we could figure out how to access the developing world with gene therapy if we set the price correctly, worked with governments, worked with other agencies to be able to bring technologies in that would solve a lot of problems for countries that are unable to purchase factor products for their patients. But there has to be a will to do that on the part of those who make the gene therapy, as well as on the governments of these countries. It's not acceptable to continue to develop products for 15% of the world and just forget about the other 85% of the world. That is just something that has been done in hemophilia for the past 60 years. Is that really acceptable today? Dr. Pierce's data and questions should leave everyone in the hemophilia community thinking about what more can they do to help ensure equitable access and care for the 85% of the world that, to put it plainly, is not considered with the same level of prioritization as the other 15. This is a massive issue, and one that the World Federation of Hemophilia, amongst others, are working diligently on addressing. Before we close, I asked some of our contributors of all that is currently being investigated, taking a really long view of the therapeutic landscape for hemophilia What are you most excited about? I've I've tried to take some of my ideas from some of the youngest age patients. 
I've had them ask me, why can't I take a pill? Was an oral therapeutic ever going to be possible for uh, hemophilia? That's not the way we're thinking anymore. But I think as we understand the biology better, is it possible that there's an oral agent that could actually modulate our hemostatic system and actually achieve a, a prophylactic approach for hemophilia? People are still exploring that. There's still a possibility that a oral therapeutic could come to fruition in the future. The second thing that I think is going to be a matter of investigation probably for many years to come is, as you know, gene therapy in its current iteration is only targeted to adults. Because of the way AAV delivers the gene to the liver, we have to give it to a mature liver. So when I think about what innovation would have the most impact over the life of a patient, it would be to have a curative therapy that was given very shortly after birth, at least before the onset of regular joint bleeds. So I believe we're going to see a shift from the gene addition strategies that you've heard about to the gene editing strategies. I've seen glimmers of that already. In fact, not even glimmers, the actual substantive clinical trial programs, which have good ideas about how to bring gene editing to a pediatric population of patients. If you think about hemophilia since the 1960s, we have been at the cutting edge of technological revolution for our products, including gene therapy. But it's important to remember, this is first-generation gene therapy. We have a long way to go. We need to make a serious attempt to improve AAV vectors that don't cause as much toxicity, have a wider therapeutic window. And there's a lot of work ongoing in that area. We need to look at getting away from AAV therapies and moving into non-viral therapies. There is work in that area as well. And then you've heard in the popular press about gene editing. If you ask me, like, what therapy gets me the most excited? What's the therapy that I think could ultimately really actually cure hemophilia? The one that keeps jumping out to me is gene editing. Gene editing is a different form of gene therapy than with the viral vector drugs, where you get an infusion of a vector that delivers a gene. What we hope for with gene editing is to be able to just go in to a region of the DNA and to basically place in, splice in, if you will, or add in a factor eight gene or a factor nine gene without using you know, viruses to deliver it and putting that gene in so that it basically becomes part of your DNA that is there to make factor eight and factor nine. This is not like in two or three years. But I think if we cast out 10 years from now, I think we may see successful gene editing for hemophilia by then. And that's what gets me the most excited because that may ultimately be able to truly cure hemophilia, both hemophilia A and B, both in adults and actually in children. This is a technology that is truly less than eight, nine years old, and yet tremendous progress has been made uh, in moving gene editing forward and in combining it with non-viral therapy so that we're not dependent on AAV. So this is an important future direction for the field, and it's an important future direction specifically for hemophilia. So stay tuned. Yeah, maybe we'll be having this conversation in five or six years and we'll be talking about some of the exciting developments in gene editing in uh, children with hemophilia. 
Like a basketball organization trying to solve for a certain deficiency in the team's makeup, science continues to explore innovative means of overcoming dysfunction in the coagulation cascade and enabling secondary hemostasis anyway. It's exciting. It's novel. And it's a work in progress. I appreciate all who contributed to this episode to help explain just where in that work we are. As clinical trials continue to progress, as therapies do become licensed and commercially available, as data collection and surveillance continues, we will continue to learn crucial information about these treatment options. It is and will continue to be imperative that clinicians and patients alike have access to appropriately tailored information and that patients and clinicians engage in a meaningful and informed process of shared decision-making so that each patient has expertise and agency on their side when determining what treatment option will best serve their life. Lastly, it will be up to all of us as patients, medical professionals, and biopharmaceutical professionals to push for equitable access to the state-of-the-science therapies for all people with hemophilia, regardless where in the world a patient may live. It won't be easy, but without the effort, we will never get there. For a list of links to learn more about some of the most crucial research into novel therapies happening right now, take a look at the program notes for this episode in your podcast player, or visit this episode's webpage on bloodstreammedia.com. Episode three of the Global Hemophilia Report goes live on Thursday, April 21st, and the topic is prophylaxis. There is much to discuss, and it's sure to be another great episode, so subscribe to the Global Hemophilia Report podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to have the episode delivered directly to you the moment it goes live. And share this episode with friends or colleagues in the field. You'll also find Global Hemophilia Report's social media pages on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thank you to the contributors to this episode, Drs. Maria Alicia Mancuso, Glenn Pierce, Stephen Pipe, Lindsay George, Margaret Ocello, Guy Young, Michael Recht, and Rich Gorman. Thanks as well to our patient contributors, Luke Pembroke and Mark Skinner. Thank you to our producer, Keith Corneluk, our editor, Jose Miguel Bias, our research assistant, Jessica Lauren Richmond, graphic designer, Christina Newhard, creative director, Joshua Sterling Bragg, and executive producers, Amy Board, Rob Bradford, and Ryan Geelan. Special thanks to our senior advisor, Dr. Donna DiMichele, and to our featured advertiser, Sanofi. My name is Patrick James Lynch, and you've been listening to the Global Hemophilia Report. Until next time. Did you know that nearly 80% of bleeds in hemophilia occur in the joints? Joint bleeds are the most common type of bleed and can cause lasting damage as well as increase the risk of recurrent bleeds. Sanofi is committed to breaking barriers for patients, including providing resources and education to support joint health. Visit hemejointhealth.com to see how routine, objective assessment might benefit patients' joint health for the long term. Again, that's heme, as in H-E-M, jointhealth.com. This site is intended for U.S. healthcare professionals.